welcome back to the Brazos Point Living Room. We are uh, glad that you are listening once again. And as always, or almost as always, we've got the three amigos. Michelle, I Hello. always want to call you Harrison. But that's not you don't what? Yeah. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. It's just like when Greg says, Mary Margaret. But Mary Margaret. The vast majority of the time you've known me, I've been Masterson. I know, but it's just yeah. Four years tomorrow. <gasps> okay, well, this podcast <laughs> oh. <You> start, Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. Four to years. Mr. Jeff. Right? That's crazy. Wow. Uh, that's wild. Randy's here too. <laughs> <laughs> he did the wedding. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> and myself. Uh, but again, we're glad you're listening and we are continuing our message series through the Gospel of John. And uh, as we continue into John 8, my first question to you guys is just tell me about a time where you got into trouble. most of the time my getting in trouble involved my mouth (laughs) are you surprised (laughs) smart mouth like i i could just remember like my mom just like popping my mouth like this is a teenage boy you know just like popping off smart off and getting a little whack with the mouth (laughs) a little slap to the mouth (laughs) yeah um uh, yeah, so mostly my mouth, but I do like when I think about getting in trouble. There was one time my cousin and I were left home alone. I think our parents went bowling. Uh, how eighties is that? <laughs> and uh, and we decided to watch the home movies, uh, like old eight millimeter. You know, like they were on a film reel, and you had to set up this projector that cast them onto the, a screen. And I don't know if you have any clue what I'm talking about, but anyway, we decided to set up and watch the home movies ourselves. Well, we accidentally fed it wrong, and then it was getting destroyed, like by the machine. And so we emptied out like a, a cracker box and put the chewed up, broken up film strips in there and uh, and then threw that Buried in it. the trash and then put everything else away. Yeah. So anyway, we did not actually get caught. I actually, I, with a guilty conscience, I told yes. on us. Oh, I was going to say, is your mom hearing right now? No, no, no. I, 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 I oh, she what's the look, word? She doesn't Snitched? Listen. Is that what, is that yeah. it? Like I sold us out. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were probably going to get away with it. And I, I sold us down the river. I'm the same. I've got such a guilty conscience that rarely did I get caught, but I just had to get stuff <laughs> off my conscience. And um, so my story, Randy actually knows, and I think it went down, was it at the same cousin's house who your story is from? No, different cousin. Different cousin? Different okay, cousin. so um, mine, so Randy and I were both in PALS in high school, peer assistance and leadership. (laughs) PALS had, as they should have, a very strict policy about not drinking and... Underage. Right. We were in high school. (laughs) And um, after prom, we all went to, what was it called? Project Celebration. Oh, not we all. No, I was there, remember? You oh, yeah, Project Celebration. Yeah, right. That's where I stayed all night. Randy's mom was in charge of it. Randy was there. My mom was volunteering. I still left after about an hour to go to a party, which Project Celebration was trying to prevent. <laughs> and the party was at Randy's cousin's house. <laughs> and while we were there, there was much drinking going on. So much drinking. And... I wasn't drinking anything, but somebody had a strawberry daiquiri, and it just looked (laughs) 
delicious. We've established how I love some fruity colored drinks, y'all. <laughs> you thought it was big red. I thought it was maybe a big red float. So somebody had a strawberry daiquiri and I just wanted to taste it. And so I asked my friend, hey, can I taste that? And she was like, yeah. So that's all. That's it. So fast forward to Monday morning and the pals sponsor has found out that some of her pals were drinking after prom. And so she I was at Project Celebration like a good is, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I should have listened. She is going around pulling pals out of class to interview them to find out what they know, what happened. And so she pulls me out of class. She says, I was I think I was in Miss Clark's class, our favorite teacher. Pulls me out of class and says, um, hey, I have been informed that some of the pals were drinking after prom and so I need you to tell me what happened and I just broke down I was like Miss Hall Miss Hall Miss Hall I did I tasted a strawberry daiquiri I I thought it was big red it it was really good but it wasn't worth it (laughs) and she goes oh uh, your name was not one of the names mentioned But I am going to need to follow through with the policy of kicking you out of pals. And with so, like four weeks left yeah, in after the graduation. Four weeks left of after school, uh, prom. After, after prom, prom. With four weeks or so left of school, uh, I and four other pals who had drunk a lot more than I had, (laughs) were kicked out. We had to go sit in like an underclassman math class during fifth period instead of going to pals. So I had to pal the rest of our senior year alone. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody but Randy. Oh, yeah. Miss Hall. No, just Michelle was kicked out. (laughs) Had put Randy and I together as partners for pal things because she thought Randy would calm me down. (laughs) That did not work out the way she thought it would. So... Ooh, yeah, got kicked out of a high school organization for one sip of daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's told like, on myself. Uh, trading your future for a bowl of stew. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than stew. Well, not to <laughs> uh, How funny! I feel like I, growing up an only child, I was just always in trouble. <laughs> There was no one to deflect the attention. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I got into like big trouble. Um, you know, I may have tried to change a report card or two when I was really little and I didn't <laughs> understand uh, how obvious that would be. Um, wow. Yeah. I think so. Deceiver. Yeah. <laughs> We're uh, over here with the guilty conscience. He's drumming <laughs> up business. <laughs> He's drumming up. Uh, I think when I was in high school one time I played I played hooky and got caught. Oh, oh one time. Wow. Well, I got caught one time. <laughs> one time. I got caught one time. But it was because he was an only child. Right, right, right. <laughs> Not because he was a school skipper grade changer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most disappointed I ever felt from my dad was we took my cousin's Jeep out way late in the night and got it stuck in someone else's <laughs> property. That was bad. We called my dad at like 3 a.m. to bring his truck to get it unstuck. And, oh, it was one of those where you just felt the heat, you know? He didn't even have to say what he was thinking. But I think he still said what he was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh, every one of us can probably, and everybody listening can probably recall a time in which you were in trouble 
you got into trouble and you knew there was no more lying. There was no more excuse. You were caught red-handed or, you know, you just, everybody knew. Well, I think the moral of the story is stay away from Randy's cousins. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Bad news. Uh, well, the, the reason we're talking about that is because today's uh, part of the Gospel of John is Jesus is going to encounter a woman who is caught red-handed in the act of sin. And she's brought before him, and uh, just we're going to look at his interaction with her, and um, I think it's a good one. So as we jump in, um, this part of the Gospel of John includes a little disclaimer that says, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, verse 53 uh, all the way to chapter 8, verse 11. So it's really the whole passage we're going to be talking about. Uh, This can be... It's a really interesting disclaimer. We really don't find anywhere else in the Gospel of John. And I kind of want to just talk briefly about it. Um, Historically, um, what this has kind of meant and why this is here in the Bible is um, this part of the Gospel of John has just really for the longest time been a part of the Gospel of John. And yet as our ability to find earlier and earlier manuscripts of the Bible and as our our ability to, to... more accurately figure out um, how reliable is all of this. Um, As we found earlier manuscripts, they have recognized that the earliest ones do not include this little passage of these 11, 12 verses. And so even though that's a weird disclaimer, I really do think it only gives more reliability and more confidence to the entirety of the gospel of John. Up front, they're saying, Hey, we have we have many many manuscripts and we're, we're we're dating them earlier and earlier to the time of the original being written and we want you to know up front the earliest ones we have don't have this passage here and i think you know the the importance of this passage and why it still is in here uh it really is because within this passage there is nothing that contradicts the the character of jesus there's no new theology there's no random uh, idea that's that's presented it really just reinforces everything you've seen about who Jesus is. I think adding to that just a little bit of understanding like so the the New Testament was originally handwritten mm-hmm. right so the original manuscripts the first ones are these handwritten you know manuscripts and based on the day and time and the way to uh, multiply that to get it out to more people there's copies mm-hmm. right and so scribes would copy the original manuscripts with a great deal of like meticulous effort to to copy it exactly as it was and so there's copies after copies after copies and you need to know like we don't have any of the original manuscripts but we do have some very old very early copies many thousands like thousands and thousands the the veracity and reliability of the bible is unmatched in anything else in literature. And so uh, as copies and copies and copies were written and recreated with this meticulous level of concern because they had this sense of understanding uh, what they were handling and what they were creating copies of, um, there's just all of this wealth of textual evidence of, of how reliable all of the text is and how close it is to the manuscripts. Um, like there's a whole level of scholarship that's de- devoted to this and it's just so solid and so strong. And, and I think going back to what you were saying, Joseph further points out, you know, this unique piece in John, it's not the only piece in the New Testament where there's these kind of bracketed parentheticals, mm-hmm. uh, but there, there are so few because there is so much manuscriptual evidence. There is so much continuity among the manuscripts. Uh, it's, it's just unmatched in the world of literacy. 
Yeah. Um, and John himself tells us that there's so many things that Jesus did that mm-hmm. weren't captured because the world couldn't hold all those world words, you know. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's other stories out there of what Jesus did. Yeah. And I mean, I would encourage folks to dig a little deeper into this. Like if yeah. this intrigues you, go learn some more about these things. But at the, at the end of the day, like we're including it in our John sermon series. We have no issue with seeing it as authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, a whole lot more to learn about why it is and isn't, what these brackets mean and don't mean, and, and what's going on here. So as we jump into this <clears throat> story, it says that the really the religious leaders, they they come to Jesus. Jesus is in the temple and they come to Jesus as he's teaching and they bring a woman who is caught in adultery uh, and they put her in his midst. They put her in front of him and they ask him a question. They say, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands, commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And my, my, really my question is what is happening here? Because on the surface, they're putting, they're saying this woman committed a sin. There's a penalty. Uh, and on the, on the surface, that's what it seems like. But underneath there's a lot more going on here. And so what's really happening? I mean, it's, it's like they're trying to catch Jesus in the, like the ultimate pickle in baseball, yeah. you know, like, like you, gotta, you can't win this one. You got a guy, you got a, a defender on home and third and, and he's caught in the middle and you can't win this one. It's a catch 22 kind of thing. And of course he's Jesus and he slides home and he scores, you know, no, no problem. But yeah, it's a trap. It's all just this big trap where they're trying to put him in this catch 22 between, uh, you know, kind of contradicting his, his message of grace or, uh, and, and violating the law of Moses mm-hmm. or, um, you know, being faithful to, to the law that he hasn't come to dismiss, but to fulfill. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting here that they're essentially saying, they're saying, Hey, the law says this is what should happen, that she should be stoned. And it says now in the law of Moses, they commanded us. And so they're really pitting in the midst of the temple. They're basically saying, Jesus, are you going to go against Moses in front of all these people? Something that's interesting that I learned in looking at this passage (laughs) is that they also broke the law of Moses. Like in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we, we know what the law says, and it says that both parties mm-hmm. must be brought out and and stand. And we know that both parties were there because she was caught in the act. It's not like they found out about her and didn't know who. I mm-hmm. mean, they were both there. So even they broke the law because they were just concerned about trapping Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. They bring her out and it's like they, they don't care about trying to keep the law. No. They're just, it takes two to commit adultery. Right. And there's only one person present and they're just trying to trap Jesus and get him to make a mistake. Uh, And so, you know, they start to, it says they said this to test him and, uh, you you know, they're trying to trap him. And it says that Jesus began, he bent down and began to write with his finger on the ground. Uh, It doesn't really say much. It just says he's just, they're trying to, they're asking for a response. Jesus, what do you say? It doesn't say anything. And he just starts to draw (laughs) with his finger on the ground. So they continue to ask him. And then he finally stood up and said, let you who's without sin be the first to throw the first stone at her. Uh, And it's this powerful, powerful statement. 
um, that cuts through to everything. And it says, again, he bent down and began to write in the sand, in the ground once again. But when they heard what he said, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest. So we are not given much here about what exactly is going on, but I just have some speculation. Like this is clear speculation. What do you guys think he's writing in the ground? And what do you think the significance is of that we're told that the oldest was the first to walk away and drop their stone? I've always thought that he was either like writing their sins on the ground or that he was writing the law that corresponded to their sin on Mm. the ground. Um, And it says, you know, they started leaving older to youngest. And, you know, some think that maybe that's because the older men were more aware of their sins than the younger men were um, and maybe less stubborn to keep standing there, I guess. But I I think I've always thought he was calling out their sins. Mm. There is such a hypocritical nature to what they're doing, right? They're, They're not actually trying to keep them the law. But what's interesting to me is they are in the temple. This is the temple that every one of them has come to before to make sacrifice on behalf of their own sins. Like they have had to sacrifice an animal to atone for their own mistakes. And I think about the oldest ones have made the most trips (laughs) to that very place. And they have had the most amount of times just to think about I have fallen short. I need a sacrifice. And I I agree with you. I think Jesus is probably writing out their sins uh, and they're watching him most likely and just being like, yeah, (laughs) let you who is without sin cast the first stone. And by the way, every single one of you is just as guilty. And uh, I just think it's crazy to me that they, they are holding themselves in a different light. And yet they're standing in the midst of the place where they go yeah. to recognize their own it, need. It makes me think of what we talked about a couple weeks ago with the question, what do we excuse in ourselves mm-hmm. that we accuse in others? Mm-hmm. See, I just thought he was doing doodles. <laughs> <laughs> like, tic-tac-toe, maybe. Drawing cartoon cats. <laughs> he was just like, ah, oh, bored. He's like, really, guys? Trying to trap me? <laughs> Well, um, it really is a powerful moment. And one by one, they all walk away. And it says that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So before we kind of get into the resolution here at the end, I'm curious, which sins do we, you know, we're talking about these Pharisees and their mistakes and how they're treating her. But we are very guilty of the same type of, of posture to other people. So which sins do we tend to categorize as big ones and which ones do we feel like we can excuse or dismiss? I think that they're, well, so one category I think is sins that can be hidden versus sins that are seen Mm. because either they affect other people or because, you know, either they get caught or just the nature of the sin is that it's visible, you know, um, is one of the ways I think of those categories. Like if, if I can hide this and nobody knows about it, then is it really sin if nobody else is getting hurt? Yeah. You know, I think there's two, like a sin, like pride, you know, like you'll see a, just a, what we would consider to be just an over expression of, you know, just arrogance. And, and then, 
you know, there's a different version of pride that's actually looks more like insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, no, no, my, in, my insecurity isn't as flagrant as their arrogance. But at the end of the day, they're both just pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it says here at the end, you know, Jesus is uh, left with her. It's just him. Everyone has left. Um, she's guilty. She knows it. She's in trouble. Like we talked about, we've all been in those kinds of moments, maybe not this big. Uh, and yet he says, woman, where are your condemners? Has no, or where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and from now on sin no more. Uh, and it's this just incredible, powerful um, interaction. Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. He says, you who is without sin cast the first stone. No one can except for Jesus. I mean, he's the only person without sin. He's the only one who is, uh, by the letter of the law, is able to, in his, in his own instructions, he's the only one who can throw a stone. And yet he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I think that's interesting too. Like he doesn't condemn her, but he also doesn't ignore, excuse, or condone the mm-hmm. sin. Like we know that he is still considering what she did a sin because he says, go and sin no more. Like this was sin. Let's be clear, but I don't condemn you. Hmm. Well, I think that goes back to our life and our life with Christ. Like, yes, Jesus calls us to repentance and he calls us out of, you know, our habits and hangups and, and our habitual sins, but he doesn't expect us to stop sinning. Mm-hmm. He knows he knows better, right? Yeah. He knows that there will continue to be sin struggles. So he may be looking at me in this moment, in this season, and saying, man, I'm calling you out of that lifestyle of sin. I'm calling you into repentance in regards to that. But that doesn't come with this expectation that I'm done sinning for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. He knows better. Yeah. I think one thing that's interesting here is I think many times, uh, even the last few weeks, we've talked about people creating their own version of Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. And I think many times people view Jesus as, oh, like he just, uh, he, he wiped away all of the penalty of sin and, and, and it doesn't matter anymore. And yet, like you said, he's saying here, hey, go and sin no more. Like sin has consequences and penalties. It affects you in your life. It affects your standing with God. And I think sometimes we're quick to think like, oh, this right here and what Jesus did is he just kind of wiped, swept uh, all of our sin under the rug and like forgot about it. But the truth is sin has penalty that comes with it. When we disobey God, when we make mistakes and when we sin, it carries a penalty. And in the same way, he's telling this woman, I do not condemn you. But what is also true is the, the sin that she just committed still has a penalty that has to be paid. And I think as I've been looking at this passage, that part is so crazy to me. It's Jesus tells her, I don't condemn you either. You are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And as he's saying that, like she, he's basically saying, you will not bear the weight and the penalty and the punishment of your sin, but he will. And he's just telling this woman, like, go, it's okay. You are forgiven. I don't condemn you. And yet in the midst of it, he's saying in, in this very place, um, not long after this, he's basically, I am going to be the one bearing that penalty. Yeah. They were ready mm-hmm. to kill you. I'm going to take it on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And he says, but go. Well, I think this whole scene is such a powerful picture of 
of grace because it's not just, I mean, it's not just the fluff. It's also the real life, like, look at all of the vulnerability, you know, Mm -hmm. like think about the scene from the beginning. You got, she's drug in and there's a massive amount of vulnerability because she's been caught in the act. They're wanting to stone her. So there's all this tension of punishment and penalty and, and the, you know, the consequence for breaking the law. Um, and then it ends in this moment of, of, of tenderness, you know, and the vulnerability is still really thick at this point, but it's this tender moment where it's just her and Jesus and he's looking her in the eye and he's like, no one condemns you because they know that they can't. I can, but I'm not because I'm here to bring grace. And ultimately that grace is going to be accomplished because of my sacrifice. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. There is a cost. I'm, I'm covering it. Hmm. Hmm. Now go in response to my grace and leave your life of sin and yeah. instead exchange it for a love of me. Yeah. That's repentance. That's good. So, I mean, the kind of final thoughts are after reading this passage in this interaction, like what should this interaction, how should this interaction inform how we treat other people? Like how do we apply what we just saw Jesus do? I think part of it is it, it makes us realize that we need to put down our stones, mm. you know, and and if if we're going to throw any, uh, we probably should throw them at ourselves, <laughs> which is funny to think about. Like, Maybe gosh, that's what he was drawing. How hard would that be to do, to throw a stone at your, your own Pictures face? Pictures of them stoning themselves. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think it causes us to put down our stones and realize that, um, you know, the judgment is ultimately Jesus's work. He's the judge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we see what kind of a judge he is in this passage. Well, and like Randy said, like our response to this, you know, should be thankfulness and um, going about living our life in obedience and worship. And we're not going to get that perfect, but that should be our response. And part of that obedience and worship is to tell other people about the Savior who paid for your sins. Like, instead of condemning people's sins, like, lead them, guide them, love them to Jesus. Well, and and it's the reality that gospel people ought to be the most humble people. Yeah. Because we've come to the point that we realize I'm not enough and I need Jesus. And yet, that's not what we're known for, Mm -mm. right? The church is not known for its humility. It's known for its self-righteousness and arrogance and pride over our goodness, our own good behaviors. And like that's just so far from what it ought to be, and that is heartbreaking, I believe, for 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 Jesus, because it's like, man, it's such a distorted misrepresentation of what you actually are. Mm. We ought to be so humble. Well, the last thought was, you know, how should this inform how we view ourselves? Uh, this this story, and I think um, what kind of what I mean by that is. Like you said, we got to put our own stones down. We love to accuse others of things we excuse in ourselves. Uh, And so be reminded, you know, we are just as guilty. Uh, But I also think that there are times in which, regardless if we're throwing stones at other people, we feel the guilt, the weight of shame for our mistakes at times too. Like this woman was guilty. Like there was no trying to get around it or... That, that those aren't the facts it's like no you were caught in the act you're standing before uh somebody who is perfect who has not sinned and i think sometimes when we look at our own mistakes we also feel the the guilt 
the weight of shame. And uh, just, I think Jesus's words to hear there at the end, also we can remind ourselves at times um, when we, we need to. I think sometimes too, it's good to talk about the concept of conviction. You know, last week we talked about having the Mm. Holy Spirit inside of us. And one of the roles, functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict us in that sin because, because, you know, the Holy Spirit can't co-dwell with sin, like God's perfectly holy. And so when we still sin, because we're going to, we're not perfect, um, but now we have this Holy Spirit inside of us convicting us of that. And it's hard to really articulate what that feels like, what that, um, you know, what that can be like in, in our lives. But that's part of repentance is the Holy Spirit convicts us. We recognize, acknowledge, confess that sin, and then turn around and ask the Holy Spirit to help us sin mm-hmm. no more. Well, and ultimately, it's always working towards redemption, right? Like, even when even when we naturally walk through some of the consequences of our sins, um, and, and at times in, like, dealing with the, the church, you know, there are consequences that come from sinful actions. Um, but ultimately, it needs to always be redemptive. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good word. This is a good good little uh, interaction with Jesus. Good little extra bracketed, <laughs> <laughs> not early manuscripted business. <laughs> uh, I see why it's still there. Cool. Any last thoughts? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week.